drinking whiskey in the kitchen and telling scary stories around the fire. Music and mayhem, fearful fiction and furious fact, tall tales and terrible truths. This is A Scary Home Companion. In 1931, there was no such thing as foodie blogs or extreme cuisine or even Yelp. But there was a New York Times writer named William Bueller Seabrook, who was the first and, to my knowledge, the only person to ever write a review about eating human flesh. I don't know if it was in the interest of journalism or science, but Seabrook found a medical student to sell him a chunk of meat from a person that died in an accident. He took it home, cooked it up, ate it, and then wrote the following review. This is a direct quote. It was like good, fully developed veal. Not young, but not yet beef. It was so nearly like good, fully developed veal that I think no person with a palate of ordinary, normal sensitiveness could distinguish it from veal. The steak was slightly tougher than prime veal, a little stringy, but not too tough or stringy. The roast, from which I cut and ate a central slice, was tender. And in color, texture, smell, as well as taste, strengthened my certainty that of all the meats we habitually know, veal is the one meat to which this meat is accurately comparable. End quote. So now you know. We taste like stringy veal. My name is Nathaniel Hensley, and welcome to A Scary Home Companion. In West Africa... The Society of the Leopard Men was one of a few different cannibalistic secret societies that existed. Local lore had them going back a long time, but they were unrecorded in written history. There was a crocodile society, a baboon society, and most notably, the cult of the Leopard Men. These dark cabals allegedly had dark, sinister powers. They would be possessed by the animal spirits for which they were named, and the bodies or parts of bodies that they took in their attacks, were used in cannibalistic rituals. At first, these societies were centered in Sierra Leone, Liberia, the Ivory Coast. The leopard men in particular would dress in leopard skins. They would attack travelers on the highway at night with sharp weapons fashioned in the form of claws and teeth. The victims would be murdered and then the flesh cut from their bodies, their organs taken and distributed amongst the members of the Leopard Society. The thing is that these attacks were so rare that even amongst the believers, there was a lot of discussion if the Leopard Men were actual monsters of myth or just men dressed in animal skins. It was sort of, for that time and place, like the story of Bigfoot, where maybe it was based on truth, but maybe it wasn't. All that changed in the 1870s 
when there was a very public series of attacks in Nigeria. This got the attention of authorities who finally officially confirmed that it was claw-like weapons made of metal being used in the attacks, and all the organs were being removed with surgical precision. Although these dark societies were already secretive, now that they were publicly condemned by the authorities, they went even deeper underground. But they never went away. In Nigeria, the cult of the leopard men reemerged in the mid-40s. Between 1945 and 1947, there were 81 murders committed by the leopard men. 81. It's more than one a week. With this sort of mayhem, word got out. It went international, and the story actually became a bit of a sensation across Europe. Because of this international exposure, the Nigerian government finally had to take action. They set up heavily armed patrols and guards, hundreds of soldiers, who were out beating the bush, specifically looking for these secret societies, specifically looking for these cannibalistic leopard men. But not only did they fail to catch any of the leopard men, they failed to stop the murders at all. The killings kept on going. They got so bad that even the soldiers themselves started to think that maybe these weren't just guys in animal skins. Maybe they really were monsters. Which is a good point. Because if flesh-eating men dress as monsters and act as monsters, then why should we think of them as anything other? Cannibalism is perhaps the greatest taboo. To eat human flesh was viewed as a perfectly normal course of human existence, however, in parts of Africa and the Caribbean for centuries. Our modern sensibilities cause us to shy away from this practice. Who are you? My name is Steph. I, I don't want to give my last name. Sure. Uh, thanks again for speaking with me. And why are you here? So, I'm what's called a seller. I'll go up on the block, so to speak, in about an hour. Now, these auctions exist in secrecy. Uh, were you recruited? How did you find out about it? Oh, heavens no, not, not recruited. I had to pester pe I had to pester a friend of mine for months before he connected me with these people. These auctions are incredibly rare. That's what I thought, too. But once I got approved or whatever, I started getting all sorts of offers. These 
things are a lot more common than you'd think. Especially with plastic surgery and home childbirth and all that. And how long have you been doing this? This will be my fourth auction in three years. This is going to be my last one. It's kind of a send-off. And what parts have you sold? Uh, actually, I got into this originally because I had a serious weight loss. Uh, it's over 100 pounds in just a little over a year. Wow. Congratulations. Thanks. Now, I had all that gross extra skin, so that was my first auction. It was really like a win, 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 win uh, all the way around. Uh, then I did three toes on my left foot. Um, that was a weird night. Then there was the kidney, and now tonight I'm doing my left leg, just under the knee. Steph, some might say that is excessive. Well, it's my retirement. A piece this size, it should go for, well, a lot. I can't say what my reserve is, but if it meets the reserve, I'll be set for a while. Plus, I'll only need to buy one shoe. <laughs> Tell me. Are you treated like a piece of meat? Oh, honestly, no, no. It sounds stupid, but, but no. I'm treated with such respect at these auctions. And the conventions, too. Conventions? <laughs> yeah, the, the people here, they're, they're real nice. I'm sure they have odd tastes, but they're, they're kind people. I mean, or else they wouldn't be here now, would they? This episode of The Scary Home Companion is brought to you by Lime Time Brand Quick Lime, now available in Citrus Blast. Siberia, 1933. What a horrific time and place to be alive. Over the course of 13 terrible weeks in the winter of 33, over 3,000 people died in one of the most notable cases of widespread and rampant cannibalism ever recorded. The setting of this affair was the Nazino Island, which has understandably come to be known as Cannibal Island. Before we can get into the story proper, there needs to be some table setting, which unfortunately involves Russian history. You don't want to hear Russian history. I don't want to say Russian history, but just bear with me. It gets disgusting in a minute. The commie government of the 30s had hatched a plan to resettle a bunch of what were called kulaks into the wilderness of Siberia. Kulaks were peasant farmers. They were to turn this barren wasteland into fertile farmland. The kulaks were the high-end peasants, the high-end farmers, and the problem the communist government faced was that the kulaks made the other poorer peasants a little jealous. So they hatched the plan to exile them all to Siberia. The middle class is making poor people jealous. Just get rid of the whole middle class. This seems like such a no-brainer. It couldn't possibly go horribly wrong, right? The first batch of four settlers was about 6,000 people strong, sent up the river to the Nazino Island. A couple of real quick problems they faced right upon landing. It was the dead of winter. The ground was frozen, so they couldn't plant anything or grow anything or even hunt anything. That was sort of a moot point, since they hadn't been sent with farming tools or seed or hunting tools either. Or, for that matter, winter clothes or medicine or food or clean water. What the island did have were armed guards, posted on boats with orders to shoot anyone trying to escape. Right off the bat, these settlers had to eat flour mixed with the dirty river water, and 
almost immediately, all of them got dysentery. Two days on the island. Due to disease and elements, people started dying by the dozens. And there was no meat other than people dying from dysentery. So, of course, cannibalism started happening. With that many people in that tightly packed of a space, that hungry and desperate, there really wasn't much other choice. But it very quickly got out of hand. Soon, the dead weren't enough, and the living started turning on each other. The strong preyed on the weak. The guards were alerted to these atrocities, and it was said that they hanged more than a few for the offenses. But that did not stop them. Too many people had the taste now. The island was too far gone. There was only one source of food to be had, and it was looking right back at you. The guards finally admitted they couldn't contain the murder and cannibalism and sent word upriver to their commie masters. After 13 weeks, the government had finally put an end to the experiment. There were roughly 2,800 people left, give or take, out of the 6,000 that first landed. They say about half of them died from natural causes. The rest are completely unaccounted for, the remains never having been found. Mostly digested, I would suppose. Is there a lesson here? I don't think so. I think just like with the Leopard Society, there's no greater truth being reflected in these atrocities. Maybe the terrible lesson we need to learn is that you might only ever be one boat ride away from sizing up another human being for prime cuts. So sing, sing, we're on our way home Across the Pacific and through the unknown God is our shepherd and no harm shall pass We'll be in Nantucket at last But for when I look at my crewmen I see him looking back at me Humanity gone from their eyes Once we were men of our God And brothers at sea Those times weren't so long ago but how quick they pass Was once death a stranger Now approaching us fast But we are Nantucket The proud and the strong For Nantucket we must travel long But oh how these hunger pangs drive All the thoughts in my brain And body dries up in the sun and fresh water that the six of us crave. So six bits of paper are tossed in the cap and six men reach in and each pull out a scrap and one man of six with the unlucky draw is one man to help feed us all. This episode of the Scary Home Companion is brought to you by Zaffron Zip Ties. Oh my, what a zip tie. Welcome back. I'm joined by a man we'll call Jack, not his real name. Jack has asked to have his voice altered. Thanks for taking a few minutes to talk with me. 
Oh, you're welcome here again. And you are, for the record, a practicing cannibal. Whenever I get the chance, yes ma'am, I am. But, uh, I'm a consensual cannibal. What does that mean exactly? I never inflict violence upon any living thing. Uh, I have the taste, uh, the hunger, as one might call it, but I only eat what is offered voluntarily. And how often do you attend these auctions? Well, as often as possible. Uh, this is going to be my, um, it's my seventh auction this year. Uh, I attended, I, uh, I want to say, 15 last year, but uh, I, I do travel quite frequently, so you know, that helps. And how many auctions have you won? Um, shoot, since I started, I, I uh, couldn't say. I'd have to look at my recipe book. Uh, ballpark, let's see, 40? Um, but that's going back 10 years old. Uh, these things are damned expensive, let me tell you. Um, in each case, I shook the hand of the seller, thanked him or her personally. Now, that's one of the, uh, one of the customs we have here, is uh, to ensure civility. <laughs> civility, you must understand, seems odd to me, being that we are at a cannibal auction for human flesh. Eight. More important here than anywhere, I'd argue. Okay, fair point. Uh, what have you eaten, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, Marianne, a gentleman doesn't kiss and tell. But I will tell you what every other buyer here tonight will tell you. And that is that placenta is sort of our bread and butter. It's easier to get quality placenta than anything else, but um, even that's pricey. And... Do you have a, uh, a favorite part? There, uh, there was this one piece of I meat once from a, uh, young Pakistani fellow on saffron rice with just a hint of lemon and freshly churned goat butter. Whew, that was transcendent. Jack, why are you here tonight? Well, there were, uh, there were several tantalizing morsels on the jacket tonight. But, um, I mean, we're all here for Steph. I was speaking to her earlier. Yeah, she told me, um, I mean, honestly, she's the only reason I'm talking to you, really. It's, uh, she's, she's sort of a legend in our world. Not many people stick around for four auctions. I, uh, haven't had the chance to taste her before. I hear there's a sizable reserve on her leg. Now, she, yeah, she's missing some tools, uh, which actually does devalue it a little. Um, but I mean, the digits have so little meat on them, it doesn't, doesn't really make a difference. I mean, not to me. Uh, some of the other fellers we were talking about kind of pooling our money together to really make a knockout offer for, uh, you know, give her a good chunk of change to retire with, you know, and then just have a potluck. Well, that's very decent of you. Well, we, we take care of each other around here. You know, it's like the Olive Garden. When you're here, you're family. This episode of A Scary Home Companion is brought to you by The Hobo Census. Support The Hobo Census. Donate through Kickstarter or GoFundMe. This episode, we've been talking about people who have the taste, the hunger for human meat. Personally, my favorite story on the subject involves a country boy named Obadiah Moncrief. For brevity's sake, let's just call him Obi. Now, by his own admission, Obi weren't never a good man, even before the foolishness started. 
Ovi always referred to his descent into murder and cannibalism as the foolishness. Obi was born at the tail end of a lifespan of a once glamorous southern farming family of some repute. Before there was a town of Short Nap, Georgia, Pappy Moncrief homesteaded the land, turned it into a farm of his own, a farm that quickly became the biggest producer of livestock for that area. The family had always said that there wouldn't even be a Short Nap if Pappy hadn't settled it, cleared out the Indians, and fenced in so many of those wild Georgia hogs. Those glory days were long since faded by the time Obi was born. The farm was in poor health, as were most of the living Moncriefs. They were long since out of the beef business, and by the time Obi turned ten, they were out of the poultry and fowl business, too. After that, it was just hogs. They lost all their contracts for pork, could never meet the deadlines. They were too unreliable, even if they had the fattest and tastiest hogs in the state. By the time Obi was a teenager, the Moncriefs were reduced to selling pigs at the county fair every year to pay their taxes. As far as anyone knew, that was the only income the family had. And then, come one county fair, Obi showed up by himself. He said that his, his folks had passed. He had a very small number of hogs with him. And as far as anyone knows, that was the last time Obadiah Moncrief had ever been to Short Nap. Now, he was by himself. He was all alone, out on his massive farm, over 400 acres large, most of it completely abandoned, all except for Obi and his hog pens. Over the years, he'd grown very close to these hogs. In part, thanks to a regular regimen of beatings and abuse at the hands of his family, Obi had spent many nights, sometimes entire weeks, out in those hog pens. To prove it, he had bite marks all over him from the hogs trying to eat him whenever he fell asleep for too long. So, from a very young age, Obi learned to be a light sleeper. More importantly, for this story, he learned that if something sat still for long enough, no matter what it was, those hogs would eat it. It had been getting harder and harder for Obi to sell the animals for meat. In fact... The only reason he had sold that final batch of pigs at the county fair that year was because those were the particular hogs that had eaten the bodies of his family. Now, it wasn't the hog's fault, and he knew that. He had put his family in the hog pen. But he still felt it was just weird to have them there. They would be the last hogs that he ever sold. Now, no longer selling pigs, he had no income, and Obi quickly ran into a problem. He was not going to be able to continue to feed these hogs if he didn't have some sort of income. His resources were limited, to, to say the least. But he was genuinely worried about how he was going to care for these animals. And then, late, one night, in what he would describe as a happy accident, Obi drunkenly ran down a hobo. He felt no guilt for the act, and in fact, the incident gave him great inspiration. So as he drove this dead homeless man back to the farm, and as he fed this dead homeless man to his hogs, Obi hatched a plan on how he could permanently supplement his hog feed. Only a couple of miles from the edge of the Moncrief property, there was an abandoned switchyard. In this part of the county, the trains hadn't run in a decade, but this switchyard was still a known congregating point for a lot of the old-school hobos who used to ride the rails. There were entire camps of homeless people there oftentimes. 
Obi decided to use this switchyard as his personal hunting preserve. But soon after, he ran into another problem. He was out of food, too. What money Obi did have was long since gone, and he was loath to slaughter a pig. His, his hogs were so big and fat he could have easily lived off one for six months, but he did not want to do that. Obi was not comfortable with that idea. These hogs were not meat to him. They were, they were something more. So it makes perfect sense that Obi started poaching the prime cuts from the hobos before tossing their corpses into the hog pen. He found he was fond of ribs and developed a recipe for a nice pan-fried tenderloin. He even built a small smokehouse on the grounds and made hobo jerky. This, this continued for, for some time. And by some time, I mean a really, really ridiculously, scandalously long amount of time. Since no one is 100% sure when his new diet started, it's hard to say exactly, but it's estimated that Obi had been on an all-hobo diet for around 10 years before anybody got wise to it. A decade's worth of murdered hobos, and no one ever noticed. Or at least no one who mattered noticed. It's not like there was a hobo census, at least not an accurate one, so who's to know? That dozens of people over the years had complained to local law enforcement was irrelevant, since the complainants tended to be bums themselves. But then one day, Obi made a grave mistake, and somebody who actually mattered went missing. It was a county tax assessor. She had disappeared while serving some papers to the Moncrief farm. There was a brief manhunt, which was quickly overshadowed by a new manhunt for the two state troopers that had disappeared while looking for the tax assessor. All of this was right around Moncrief Farms. In the ensuing chaos, cops started going out in squads of four, six at a time. And it's a good thing they did, because one of the four cops that visited Obadiah Moncrief's farm managed to get an outgoing distress call before he got shotgunned and before he got thrown into the hog pens with the other dead cops. That one distress call was all it took, and the jig was finally up. By this point, Obi was a mountain of a man, as rotund and tit-heavy as his beloved hogs. Here was a man who hadn't just gotten by on human meat. He'd gorged himself to the point of morbid obesity. It took a lot of cops, and a helicopter, I'm told. But finally, the Georgia State Police brought Obadiah Moncrief to justice and put him in jail. And that was the end of the foolishness, at least for a little while. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to be a featured musical guest, or if you have a scary story you'd like to share with the world, reach out to us at a scary home companion at gmail.com. Folks, not only is cannibalism alive and well in America, but it wears a suit and has impeccable manners. If everyone involved is consenting, is it really wrong? This is Marianne Simpson currently considering an invitation to a potluck.
We hope you've enjoyed listening to Scary Home Companion. Today's episode was written and directed by Nathaniel Hensley. It was recorded by Daniel Jopling and edited and produced by me, Carl Offenberg. That last song you heard was called Florida Man, and along with most of our music today, it was generously recorded exclusively for us by Miss Chelsea Oxendine. You can find more of her work on her YouTube channel, Chalsen, that's C-H-A-L-S-E-N, on YouTube. The cheerful sea shanty following the Cannibal Island story was the ending of the song The Final Voyage of the Whalers Essex by Rusty Cage from his album Gangstalkers. You can find this song and many more Rusty Originals at rustycage.bandcamp.com. Daniel Jopling lended his voice for the parts of Steph and Jack, and, as always, our interviewer Mary Ann Simpson was played by Jamie Hensley. Thank you for listening, and be sure to subscribe if you'd like to hear more. Thank you.